This is Shelter in Place, a podcast about coming together in a world that pulls us apart. From Oakland, California to Hamilton, Massachusetts, I'm Laura Joyce Davis. This summer, my family and I have been on the road, slowly making our way back to Oakland after nine months away. If you've been listening, then you already know that story, what we've been calling our pandemic odyssey. It's a story with a lot of twists and turns, and there were some rough waters along the way. But there were also gifts of hospitality, friendship, and community. Some of those we've experienced as we've traveled from one coast to the other and now back again. But the most profound experience of this pandemic odyssey hasn't been our travels or even the episodes we're creating. It's been getting to share a bit of life with the 11 graduates of our podcast training program. Admittedly, we've struggled to find the right name for this program because what we're doing is a little hard to pin down. For most of season two, we've been calling it our apprenticeship program because we believe that the best way to learn is by doing. We're inviting our apprentices into the creative process and then coaching them through each and every step of the way. But over time, we realized that apprenticeship sounded too much like internship. While we had in mind a carpenter guiding her apprentice in crafting artful furniture, others might be thinking more about a certain reality TV show that bore no resemblance to what we were doing. Recently, we finally settled on calling it our podcast springboard program because we're doing all that we can to launch our graduates into careers in audio. We aren't just teaching a set of skills. We're providing mentorship, community, and support for life. Right now, until July 31st, we're accepting applications for our fall cohort. For the month of July, we're sharing with you what some of our graduates have to say about their experience. Then you'll hear some of the episodes they worked on, which were some of our favorites. I hope you enjoy getting to know these incredible women as much as we have. Here's Melissa Lent and Eve Bishop to start us off. My name is Melissa Lent, and I was a winter 2021 apprentice for Shelter in Place. What can I say about the Shelter in Place apprenticeship? What couldn't I say? You know, there are some jobs where you wake up and you're like, well, it's just another day. But every day that I woke up to work on Shelter in Place, I was excited. At Shelter in Place, I found my voice. I cannot recommend this apprenticeship enough. It was a joy to be able to work with Laura, with Nate, with the team. I pitched my own episode and that idea became a story and I got to work on it with Laura and Nate and a team and really bring something that was a small seed into something beautiful, something more complex, more imaginative than I ever realized that it could be. I was able to be an associate producer. I was able to be an associate editor. I was able to be an assistant audio editor, writing scripts, doing research, learning about podcasting from start to finish. You will learn all of that, but there is so much more. The connections that you make, the people that you meet, you will gain valuable mentorship from people who do this every week and have been doing it for a long time and have been learning about it the whole way. Laura and Nate see you, see the experience that you have and also the potential in you and see how can we grow that further. 
And there are not that many experiences that I've had where people have really thought about how I can grow and how they can make that happen. I had done other work before, but in this space, I was allowed to be experimental, to try new things, to really let myself go. This apprenticeship gave me confidence that I had never experienced before. I learned so much about myself during this process. I learned who I am, who I want to be, and what I want to do to get there. I learned how to be a leader. I learned how to believe in myself. I now have that confidence, that experience where I feel like I can advocate for myself better because I was in that environment where people were advocating for me and were teaching me what I could ask for. Respecting and protecting my time. After my experience at Shelter in Place, my view on how I want to work has forever changed. When I think of Shelter in Place, I think about an environment where people are holding their hands out to you. I've had some time away from Shelter in Place, and I think about it almost every day. I think about how lucky I was to be able to have this experience to meet these people, and I will carry that with me through the rest of my career. Hi, my name is Eve, and I was an apprentice at Shelter in Place in winter of 2021. What would I say to someone who's interested in this apprenticeship? I would tell them to do it. There's a lot of focus paid to our career goals and our professional development. In addition to gaining the skills necessary to be in the podcasting industry, Laura and Nate really focus on tailoring our experiences so that we can grow and develop both personally and professionally. Each Friday, Laura and Nate would lead sessions having to do with our work and life goals, personal and professional development. They really care about each of the apprentices sort of tailoring their experience so that we get to do what we want to do, not just what they want us to do. For me personally, I was really specifically interested in script writing and getting better at writing voiceover. They allowed me to do that many, many times. Feeling that we are really cared for, like I am truly a valued member of the team, that's something that I've almost never experienced before. I would say the best thing about being an apprentice at Shelter in Place is the community that Laura and Nate have worked to build. Especially in a virtual environment, it's hard to find a team where you feel like you can really connect with others. I went into the apprenticeship really hoping to gain a certain set of skills, which I did, but what I wasn't expecting was to come out of it with an incredible collective of people through the other apprentices and two mentors that I feel like I can go to months and years down the line. Laura and Nate really truly care about our growth. They are two of the kindest, most genuine people I've ever had the pleasure of working with. And I think in any creative industry, it's really important to have mentors like that. Coming out of the apprenticeship, I don't feel like it's goodbye. I have two really knowledgeable, really smart, really kind people who I can go to with questions, who can help me prepare for interviews, who can read scripts for future projects that I'm working on. I think that that's what's really special about the program. I would recommend this apprenticeship to pretty much anyone looking to learn about podcasting or just grow creatively. This is a very special apprenticeship. Today, I want to share with you an episode that Eve worked on with Sarai Waters, who was the very first graduate of our training program. Here's Sarai with that episode. Homelessness is dried hands, 
and cracked lips and prayers for hot showers at Lava May on Tuesdays. It's five different outfits in one bag, five tops, four bottoms, and a jumpsuit with two pairs of shoes. Homelessness is being a quick change artist in the McDonald's restroom at 6 a.m. The water is cold and so are the stairs, but your pity isn't needed here. There are enough parties of one to go around and I seem to have misplaced my invite. I refuse to smell like the fire I've walked through or the human scat I almost stepped in. I'm the product of my environment, of vigilant nights and studious days, of nights cloaked in newspapers that cover exposed joints like fresh pastries, fragile and warm. Homelessness is dehumanizing. And there's always room here because homelessness doesn't discriminate. Not far from our house in Oakland, Rick hangs out by the off-ramp to the highway. Rick's face looks like a map of a hard life. There are deep lines etched on his forehead and cheeks, and his blue eyes are bloodshot and teary. His speech is slurred and scratchy, and he always looks startled when we remember his name. Over the years, we've handed Rick food and socks and water bottles out of our car window, in the space between when the stoplight turns from red to green. Our kids have made him care packages and included him in their bedtime prayers. Occasionally, I've found Rick waiting outside the nearby grocery store and have bought him orange juice or a sandwich or offered him whatever else I had in my sack of groceries that he could eat without cooking. Rick is among the over 28,000 homeless people in the San Francisco Bay Area. As far as I can tell, he sleeps in a tent in the thicket of trees just beside the highway. In the 16 years that I've lived in Oakland, I've watched the homeless population grow. Encampments have sprung up all over the city. Entire blocks or parking lots of tents with makeshift shelters and sometimes even solar panels. Even before the pandemic, the San Francisco Bay Area had the third largest homeless population in the nation, second only to New York and L.A., According to San Francisco City data, for every one person who escapes homelessness, three more people take their place. Unlike other tech hubs like Seattle and Austin, San Francisco's urban development is extremely regulated, which means that there are tighter restrictions on how much can be built. More restrictions means less housing, and less housing means more homelessness. Until recently, homelessness was considered a problem for individual cities and counties to solve. But since the Bay Area includes regionally mobile homeless populations that span nine counties and 101 cities, among them San Francisco, San Jose, Oakland, and Berkeley, those county and city lines can get fuzzy fast. The Bay Area is not alone in these challenges. Other U.S. cities, like New York and L.A., are dealing with their own homelessness challenges. Nearly a quarter of the United States' homeless population resides in those two cities. Most of my experiences with homeless people have looked a lot like my interactions with Rick. But recently, I spoke with someone who challenged every assumption I had about homelessness. Hi, my name is Sarai Waters, and I'm an apprentice with the Shelter in Place podcast. Sarai was among the first to join the apprenticeship program that we launched a few months ago to train and mentor women podcasters and creative entrepreneurs. 
She came to us from Karma Compass, a blog founded by Adisa Nicholas Huntsman, who reached out to me to recommend Sarai. I could immediately tell in our interview that Sarai was smart and curious, but she was also grounded in a way that suggested experience beyond her years. She told me calmly about how she went to grad school as a film student in L.A., but these days was more interested in becoming a business owner and audio editor. And then, just as calmly, she told me about the time in her life when she was homeless. I was homeless for six months. We were homeless in L.A. for 20 days, and I was homeless again in San Francisco. On the streets, specifically, for 45 days. Sarai didn't fit any of the stereotypes. Sarai's experience reminded me of a phenomenon I read about recently, hidden homelessness. Hidden homelessness is when people have temporary solutions to shelter, maybe couch surfing, staying with friends or family, sleeping in cars, or even in abandoned buildings or parks. But because they're able to present well during the day, it's not obvious that they're homeless. Women and youth are more likely to be among the hidden homeless. They're also less likely to seek help from shelters or social services. The first time Sarai was homeless, her mom was homeless with her, and she was attending grad school. I was homeless for a total of 20 days in Los Angeles in grad school. My mom was my rock during that time. We didn't have any money to sleep anywhere because my FAFSA hadn't kicked in. So my days were like any other day. It was almost like I wasn't homeless. I went to class from 9 a.m. to 10 p.m. Having to get up early, being in class all day, it didn't hit me until night. I had no idea if I was sleeping at a park bench at night. There would be nights where she'd be like, well, we're sleeping in the baseball park. And I'd be like, okay. The baseball park lights did not go off until 11 o'clock. So it'd be super bright out there. And we'd have to wait until the field closed. And then we'd sleep wrapped up in every single item of clothing that we brought to LA. All we had was our jackets. We were on a metal park bench. I couldn't sleep beyond two o'clock in the morning because that's where the cold would set into the bowl of the valley where we were. I'd be so cold and I'd be up until six and we could go to McDonald's, get washed off, change clothes. Some days it was easier to accept than others. Sometimes I separate myself from my emotions to help me get through traumatic events. That's not necessarily the best, but that has been my coping mechanism for as long as I can remember. And during that time, it was my go-to because that was the only way I was gonna make it through class. I would have to step out of what I just endured the night before, go to school, get all of that done, be around my classmates who have perfectly normal lives, and then I'd have to go back to sleeping at a park bench at night. It was kind of like I had to step in and out of myself. None of my teachers knew what was going on. My classmates, however, they knew that I was struggling with my living situation, and some of them asked where I was staying. Some of them would have given me space if they had space in their apartment, but one of them in particular put my mom and I up in a hotel for about four or five days, and that shocked the heck out of us because we were like, you don't even know me. Like, we just have classes together. He was one of the most wonderful humans I've ever met in my life. I'm really grateful that he did that for us and gave us a reprieve because that's really what it felt like. We've titled the second season of Shelter in Place Pandemic Odyssey because as we've grappled with what it means to be human in our world right now, my family and I have also been on a journey that's taken us from California to Massachusetts and called into question just about everything we've encountered along the way. 
We've had some tough times on that journey, and there's been a lot of loss. But we've also been the recipients of hospitality and kindness that has pushed us to consider that maybe it's not such a bad thing to let go of some of our former ways of living. Early on in the original Odyssey, Odysseus runs into some tough luck when he angers the god Poseidon, who stirs up a storm that leaves Odysseus shipwrecked. His life is only spared because the goddess Athena puts a protective veil over him to save him from the crashing waves and jagged rocks. At last, Odysseus washes up in a river inlet. He's lost everything, even his clothes, so he sleeps naked in the forest under a pile of dead leaves. Things look pretty grim, but once again, Athena comes to the rescue. She appears to the Phaeacian princess Nausicaa in a dream and convinces her to do laundry in the river where Odysseus is sleeping. The next day, Nausicaa does her laundry as suggested and finds Odysseus. Thanks to Athena's magic, his shabby appearance only makes him more appealing to the princess. Mm. Nausicaa gives him directions to her palace, where he is restored and clothed, thanks to the Phaeacians' incomparable hospitality. This hospitality to strangers isn't unique to the Odyssey. It was such an important cultural value in ancient Greece that there was a word for it. That word was xenia, translated as guest friendship. It's where we get our word xenophobia, as in fear of strangers. Xenia wasn't just a synonym for hospitality. It was a concept that conjured up the expectation that strangers and foreigners would receive shelter, at times, even when they belonged to rival or enemy cities. The god who cared most about Xenia was Zeus, god of sky and thunder, king of the gods of Mount Olympus. The Odyssey is full of accounts of Xenia being honored or ignored, always with notable rewards or consequences. Mistreatment of strangers wasn't just a failure of Xenia. It was an affront to Zeus. Sarai knows a thing or two about Xenia. She's experienced both the kindness and disregard of strangers. But to really understand how she became homeless, first in LA and then later in San Francisco, we have to go back further in Sarai's story. Sarai says that she had a happy childhood. She's from Newark, New Jersey, but her family moved around a lot. She's lived in Pennsylvania, Florida, Georgia, Alabama, California, New York, and North Carolina. When Sarai was 11, her parents got divorced, but even her memory of this event is surprisingly positive. They're beautiful people separately. She and her brother still saw their dad, and when he remarried, they gained a half-sister. Fast forward to 2015 when Sarai's brother was off at the Naval Academy and Sarai and her mom were living in Miami. Sarai didn't know it then, but she was about to embark on her own odyssey. Our journey of leaving Miami and going to LA, it was a journey of its own. Around 2015, there were a lot of changes going on in my spiritual life, which is really what kept me rooted through all of this. That started with my church, we felt like we needed to leave because there were a lot of things going on that we didn't agree with. And shortly before leaving, I kept getting people coming up to me and I was like, okay, I guess I'll listen. The changes in Sarai's spiritual life were complicated. Sarai grew up in the church, but she was starting to question that faith when the people at her church became controlling. 
Sarai and her mom were struggling to pay their bills, but when Sarai's mom asked for help, they turned her away. In the midst of all this, strangers kept approaching Sarai and telling her that they thought God was calling her to grad school in LA. The only problem was that Sarai didn't want to go. When the messages kept coming, she tried to be open. She applied for a program and turned in her financial aid application. Still, life felt too unstable to make a move across the country without a place to land. And then, life made that decision for her. My mom had recently lost her job because her car got repossessed and she wasn't able to go to work. We were running low on funds. We were living with a friend. They literally bought our plane ticket, gave us cab fare, and drove us to the airport the day before registration closed for me to enroll. In those few weeks before we left for LA, I knew that God was leading me to go back to school. My mom and I were those type of people who are very much prepared for crazy things to happen. I have crazy faith where doing stuff like that doesn't faze me at all. I knew everything would be okay, even though I had no clue that things were not, in fact, going to be okay. When we got to LA, we used all the money for the cab fare, we enrolled me in school, and we had to call my grandma to get us a hotel for the night. And we were like, okay, we're okay for two days. By this time, classes had started. After those two days were over, we were like, okay, what do we do now? We waited, we listened, we prayed, we sat silently, nothing. And we knew that we were going to be sleeping outside that night. And so we walked down the hill toward this baseball park. And it's like 10 o'clock at night because my film classes were getting out super late. So we were like, all right, we can do this. We were not prepared at all. We thought California was sunny. It's sunny during the day, not at night. It's completely a desert. We were the only people that would sleep in the park at night. And I'm really thankful for that because during that time, my faith was not there to see a way out. I knew that my FAFSA would eventually kick in. I knew that I would eventually find a roommate who I could live with, but in my heart, I was freaking out. I was upset with God, and my mom and I would switch being upset with God. When you read the Bible, David was the most real person I've ever heard of because he'd have his joyful moments and he'd have his moments where he's like, do you see this? They're trying to kill me. And in this instance, it was like God was trying to kill me. Admittedly, Sarai's tolerance for adventure and risk is high. She was ready to move across the country without being sure where she'd land. I know that feeling, because while my family and I knew that we had family waiting for us in Massachusetts when we set out across the country, we didn't exactly know how we were going to make ends meet. The whole thing felt a little crazy, but it also felt exactly like what we needed to do. Sarai says that while she spent plenty of time being angry with God during that time, she wasn't scared. My relationship with God, it definitely got a little bit complicated and simplified at the same time. I was no longer reading the Bible, but there were things that were still in my heart that I knew to be true. I would still talk to him every day. I always tell people I found God when I left the church because I had to learn who God was for myself through experience. And I really think that's why he took us through that process of homelessness so that we could truly rely on him and nobody else because we didn't know anybody on the West Coast. My mom went through all of that with me. 
It was literally just me and her out there on faith. And every single day, we had no clue what was going to happen, but we knew that we were going to be okay as long as we had each other and as long as one of us was balanced enough emotionally to still be talking to God. At some point during the 20 days, I figured if God has me out here, he's got to protect me. I definitely knew it was going to be a long haul. How I did it, I can't ascribe it to anything but God. I was like, I didn't put myself out here, you did, which means there's a purpose for this that I do not see at all, but that means I have to get to the other side of it so I can tell other people. My story isn't helpful if it reaches no one. So I just kind of knew that he had me, and he did. Sarai mentioned King David from the Bible, and I've mentioned Odysseus, but those old stories aren't the only ones that come to mind when I hear about those early weeks in LA before her financial aid kicked in. The Hebrew Bible is full of stories about prophets that were called to live radically. These stories don't get a lot of play because they are admittedly weird. God asks Ezekiel to lie down on his left side for 390 days. He tells Hosea to marry a prostitute. Jonah gets swallowed by a big fish when he ignores God's command to go to Nineveh. We often think about prophecy as telling the future, but the Hebrew prophets were often doing something even bigger. They were providing a tangible example for society to see how things could be different, or a warning of what life might look like if nothing changed. Growing up in the church, Sarai was familiar with these stories, and she says that she does think that being homeless was a kind of prophetic act, that as much as she didn't want to be there for a season, she did sense God calling her to this very countercultural way of living. But that realization came later, after she'd completed grad school and had moved up to San Francisco. Once again, she made a move on faith, this time believing that some family in the area would take her in. But when that arrangement didn't work out, she found herself back on the streets. The first 20 days of homelessness in LA, I wasn't thinking on biblical terms at all. I was thinking, what the heck? It wasn't until my experience in San Francisco where I actually had the time to sit down because it was a less stressful situation where I was allowed time to meditate and think on what exactly it was that I was going through. That helped me link it to those Old Testament moments. God has always been a source of peace for me. I knew God all of my life. My mom tells me I came into this world knowing God. I grew up hearing him. God talks to me in my dreams. We both felt like it was something that we had to go through. I knew that whatever I was supposed to be learning, humility, not caring about what other people think, or worrying about how many clothes I have, if I'm wearing the exact same outfit that I wore for the past five days. It was a really humbling and beautiful experience. That was a much better experience, actually, because I knew what to expect. I knew God had me. I was like, okay, God's going to provide for my food. He's going to provide for my shelter. I would say I had enough faith to start the journey. I was like, oh, this is part two. Okay, got it, got it. And by that point, I was like, well, we know what to do. I had sweatpants and long johns, sweaters, coats. When it rains, we would sleep in like bus depots. And he allowed us to be practical. We used food stamps. 
which some people are ashamed to do, but when you need to use food stamps, you use food stamps. They were our bread and butter. We would meet random other homeless people. Homeless people do not usually talk to housed people. It's less intimidating to talk to someone who actually understands what you're going through versus someone who looks at you and pities you. We were able to have open and honest conversations with strangers, other youth that I was in the shelter with. I actually became like the shelter mom and I would make sure that everybody was okay and they knew not to play games with me because I am not the one. Don't step on my wet floors because I like to mop. That was my peace and quiet time. But I made sure that things were running smoothly. They would talk to me about what they were going through, why they ended up there. Some of them just had disagreements with their parents. Some of them were kicked out of the house because they were gay. That was really hard to listen to. But actually, what's really crazy is going to San Francisco was the first time that I was really put in the world of the gay community. Like it was the first time where I was able to have an open and honest conversation with them to understand them. Like I've always had a heart for the community because I'm in it and was in denial at the time. I met some really wonderful people out in San Francisco. Being out there is what taught me what community was. I've never felt community like community, you know, like I've got your back, you got my back with people outside of the homeless community. Sarai's story makes me realize how many assumptions I've had about the homeless population, even as I've tried to be compassionate toward them. I never would have imagined that Sarai would find the best community of her life in a homeless shelter. But from another angle, it makes sense. So much of what we think will make us happy, wealth, possessions, status, power, just sends us along on the hamster wheel of striving. With all of those things stripped away, Sarai was more able to see the Xenia in the people that she met at the homeless shelter, that guest friendship that welcomed in strangers at their most difficult hour. Sarai did mention that some of her friends at the homeless shelter had come from other cities where their experience had been a lot more difficult. San Francisco has more supportive housing per resident than any other U.S. city. But as the city's homeless population continues to grow, social services can't come close to keeping up with the needs of that population. New programs addressing homelessness in the Bay Area have made permanent housing solutions a priority. But in those efforts, temporary shelters and other emergency options for sheltering the homeless have fallen by the wayside. Bay Area shelters are maxed out, able to offer assistance to only a third of the homeless population, leaving the other two-thirds to seek shelter on the streets. If Sarai were homeless in San Francisco today instead of four years ago, her experience might be very different. She still believes that there was purpose to her time being homeless that it's something God was calling her to for a season. But she said that her experience also showed her that she couldn't just be passive and wait for God to do something. She needed to take action. I had super unrealistic beliefs about getting out of that situation. I've learned to ground myself since then. But at the time, I was like, okay, God got me in this. He'll get me out some super crazy way. And that is not what happened at all. God was like, you have resources. Go to the youth shelter. Talk to the people there. See a counselor. Talk to them about housing options. Talk to them about getting a job. Homeless people cannot successfully have a job if they do not have a mailing address to send their insurance information and all the things that business corporations require to be sent to your house. 
thankfully, at the time when I was in San Francisco, I was still young enough to enter into a youth slash young adult homeless shelter. There, I had to end a, a raffle for bedding each night. There's like an emergency bed that you can stay in one night and you have to come back the next day and try to get the bed. And then there's also a list that you put your name on. And when people move out, you move up on the list to get a bed. So that gives you a place of residence so you can have an address so you can get a job. But a lot of people don't go to shelters because shelters are not always safe. They have rats. There are other people there who deal with pests, ticks. That's why they require you to have TV shots when you go into shelters. If you're like staying there as a resident, it's really not a safe or clean environment to live in. So it's not that they don't want to get a job, they just don't have the right circumstances to get a job. And thankfully, I was afforded the opportunity in the young adult shelter, it was a lot cleaner. They're much more willing to work with you when you're a young adult to get you out there, to get you housing with subsidized payments. There's still politics there, but it's less than what you're dealing with in an adult shelter. So that really helped me get my footing out the door and then it was actually the day of my birthday where I finally turned the age where you're no longer allowed to be in the shelter. I believe it's either 24 or 25, and I had just turned that age. And so I was no longer allowed to stay there. And at the time, I didn't have enough money for subsidized housing. But thankfully, my friend already had a job that was able to get her a foothold in the door for subsidized housing. She was able to save money so that we could get an apartment together and then move out. It's not impossible, but it's very hard to get out of homelessness without knowing the right people and having the right community around you. Most homeless people do not have the right community around them to help them get out of the situation that they're in. Sarai said that she was lucky to have a friend who could help her get out of that situation. But even once she had housing, even with a graduate degree, getting a job turned out to be a lot harder than she'd imagined. I couldn't find work. I would apply and apply and apply and nothing came through. I was newly off the streets, had no car. I was like, okay, where can I get to easily and quickly? I was applying to the mall and the library. It's just a short walk away from the apartment and I applied to so many stores. No doors would open for me. I had to go back to New Jersey. I was finally able to get a job when I got back to New Jersey. I was working at a pretzel bakery. Lots of pretzels, great energy from teenagers. What's not to love? I have to confess that even as a person of faith who has a pretty high risk tolerance and sense of adventure, it's still hard for me to understand how Sarai was able to embrace being homeless. I asked Sarai if she feels any different about the experience now, if she's ever doubted that what she was doing was not only purposeful, but prophetic. There were definitely moments of doubt, but not at that time. I don't know how to describe it, but I never questioned his realness to me during that time of homelessness. I had no choice. Like he was my only lifeline and I held on for dear life. And honestly, I'm glad I had that experience because had I not, I would not have realized just how much I need God in my life as my center. Life hasn't turned out the way that Sarai thought it would, but she's embraced it anyway. She's still doing creative work and she doesn't regret going to grad school, but at least for now, she's not using her degree in film. She's more interested in investing in the relationships around her and extending Xenia to her boyfriend and her family and her dog. She hopes that someday, she can have a family of her own. I've been ending these episodes with an invitation, 
And so I asked Sarai what she would like us to know. She said to remember that our homeless populations have stories that we'll never know unless we take the time to seek them out. In researching this episode, we learned that the San Francisco Bay Area has the second highest level of household income inequality in the country. Our homeless population isn't only the unemployed and the mentally ill. There are also people with jobs who work full-time and still can't afford to live in the city. Legend has it that in ancient times, the god Zeus would disguise himself as an ordinary human in ragged clothes just to make sure that people still knew how to practice hospitality, that they hadn't forgotten the importance of Xenia. In the book of Hebrews in the Bible, one verse reads, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. For those inclined to view our homeless populations as people not pulling their weight in society, maybe we'd do well to imagine them instead as divinely disguised. We talk a lot at Shelter in Place about transforming communities by first transforming ourselves. In this case, we can do both. We can recognize the humanity in the homeless. Maybe start by just introducing ourselves and asking their names. We can resist the urge to think we know their stories and instead investigate what our cities are doing to support them. Each year, the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development awards homeless assistance grants to communities that provide housing and services at the local level, including street outreach, emergency shelters, and rapid rehousing. The current COVID relief bill in Congress would provide multiple methods of assistance to low-income renters, to those recovering from homelessness, and people who are currently homeless. Sarai said that she hopes her story humanizes homelessness for those who hear it, that it inspires others to ask what we can do to help our homeless populations. Last week, Sarai became the first to complete our apprenticeship program here at Shelter in Place. In that time, she's learned about everything from audio editing, to pitching her ideas, to interviewing with compassion. But she's also taught our team a lot in that process. She's reminded us that at the end of the day, all of our hustling and striving matters a lot less than we think it does. That Xenia is still an important cultural value. Even if we don't have to worry about Zeus striking us down, even in a pandemic, she's helped this metaphorical shelter to feel a little more like home. A Huda Media Production.